0: hello and welcome to the second swl podcast the first one was such a major success they decided to bring us back with a whole new lineup because the first people weren't that fun uh i'm joined by bella butler and harry gertside i'm chris byfield and today we're going to be talking about transfer news in southwest london Uh, we're going to talk about athletes that have played at the highest level in two different sports and we're going to be talking about the academy system how do how well do they look after the welfare of their players so starting on transfers tell me what's going on in southwest London Harry
1: of course hello everyone um, first of all I'm going to speak about QPR they've just signed Charlie Austin um, in this window now for all of you uh, football fans you'll know that Charlie Austin played for QPR he made 82 appearances for them scoring 45 goals. Um, and he signed earlier on uh, this, this month and scored in his debut against Luton in a 2-0 victory. Uh, now, QPR have struggled uh, in recent times and many people are, are putting that down to the loss of Ebruce Eze. Now, Chris, as a, as a Palace fan, um, do you want to talk any more about that and what a loss that would have been um, for Queen's Park Rangers?
0: Uh, what I would say, I know that I think Eze scored like 14 goals for them last season and I think he got something like five or six assists, like Eze was hugely influential in terms of numbers. But I put it out there right now that Ebereche Eze is the best gliding footballer in the Premier League. He literally glides past people. You just have to watch that goal v Sheffield United and you would agree. So that would be a massive loss. But to be fair, to get Charlie Austin back, if they, if he can find anything like the form he had in 2013, um, would be massive, surely.
1: Mm, yeah, I agree with that. I, I did see the goal. It... Uh, Reminded me of the the Son versus Burnley last season, which won the goal of the season. So, uh, yeah, Ebruce Eze, what a player. Um, Queen's Park Rangers have also made a move for Stefan Johansson. Uh, Now he's played 126 times for Fulham, um, but struggled to make an impact on loan last season at West Bromwich Albion in the Championship, obviously despite promotion. So they're looking to to fill that creative void in the midfield, which has obviously been left vacant by the departure of Ebruce Eze. Um, Now, another player they've been linked with to fill that void is Alex Pritchard. Uh, Now, QPR boss uh, Mark Warburton did get the best out of Pritchard um, at Brentford before his £11 million move to Huddersfield. Uh, There are reports that he could leave on a free, um, which I think would be a very good signing for for Queen's Park Rangers. As I said, they're lacking that creativity in the midfield. Mm. Um, Moving on to to Millwall. Uh, Now, they've only won two of their last 16 games in all competitions. So Gary Rowett's got to be scratching his head at this moment in time <laughs> and <laughs> definitely needs to make a move in, in, the, transfer, uh, in the transfer market. Uh, Chris, I'm not sure whether you're aware or, or Bella, but um, Millwall was, was sort of the top of the uh, championship at the beginning of the season. They were absolutely flying, made a few good signings. And now they're finding themselves you know, on 26 points near the bottom of the championship. Just what do they need to do?
0: Oh God, you know, what? I'm not going to lie. Um... I mean, you've already outed me as a Palace fan, so I guess my impartiality has died a death. But it always fills me with a little bit of joy to hear that Millwall are having a hard time. Um, so I hope that transfer does not go well. Um, what's going on at Leighton Orient, Harry? Uh,
1: yeah, so in, in, terms of, in terms of Leighton Orient, uh, they've signed a midfielder from Wickham. Um, obviously, as you know, Wickham were in the Championship Leighton Orient in League Two. So obviously a positive signing from them looking up the leagues as opposed to to below themselves Um, he's a 25 year old forward struggled for game time at the championship club um, but will looks to be a good signing for them Um, and they've also signed another player from from higher up the leagues they've signed a player called Dan Kemp 22 year old um, from West Ham so obviously an academy prospect and we'll go into the academies later Um, but yeah looks to be a good signing as well just back to Millwall um, they are—they've yet to make a signing in this transfer window, but they are looking at a player called Alex Mawat, who right. played for Leeds for, for quite a while. Very good player, and is now a Barnsley captain. Now we've got to look at this move and think: Does this player really want to make this, you know, sideways step to, to Millwall? Because you know, Barnsley are about six places higher in the championship. Would it really be a good move for Mawat? We don't know at this stage. And as I said, they haven't made any signings, but. Um, It looks like they need to because it's looking pretty bleak for them at the moment.
0: Harry, that was tremendous. I felt like I um, was talking to David Ornstein and uh, that is the highest praise I could give anyone. Um, Thank you. That's the dream. Bella, tell me what's happening, happening at my beloved Palace. I think the one club in the Premier League actually doing something, this transfer window.
2: Yeah, it looks like they are. So the Athletic have reported that Jean-Philippe Materta is coming uh, on an 18-month loan from Mainz. Uh, he scored 10 goals in 70 games across all competitions this season, so he's doing pretty well. Uh, some of those are in the Bundesliga, uh, including a hat-trick at Freiburg in November, which was pretty incredible. Uh, the loan fee is going to be about £3 million. Um, and an obligation to buy for 15 million further down the line and there will be a trigger to make the move permanent
0: very exciting what,
2: uh, what do you think about it Chris well
0: I am I am excited by it, it it's interesting because it it's quite a it's a, quite a bleak predicament for Benteco's future you know obviously he's struggled in front of goals he had a moment where it looked like he might have a little resurgence this season but I mean, Meteta's very much a similar profile. He's also around six foot two, six foot three. A lot younger, of course, but, you know, a a real target man. And, I don't know, Benteke's contract's running out in the summer. Does make you think, is he still going to be there post this season? Um, Interestingly as well, you kind of think that with Max Meyer leaving, it probably does open it up to bring Mateta in. Because, obviously, Max Meyer um, was on, like, an enormous contract because we barely paid any money to sign him so but yeah no i am excited i'm not gonna lie it's the classic i have never actually seen mateta play beyond a couple of youtube highlight reels where i got very excited um then again i reckon if i was in a youtube highlight reel i would look world class um so i don't think it's necessarily uh an indictment on how good he's gonna be normally in the transfer window you know january there's always some moves going on like West Ham are always linked to some bloke in Turkey, Um, and this season because of COVID and Brexit, it just seems pretty quiet.
1: No, I I would agree with that, Chris, and I think that it's an exciting prospect um, for Palace. In the in the last few years, we've we've seen a lot of um, of French powerful forwards come through the ranks. You know, in the in the French uh, under twenty one team, you've had players like Otton Edward for Celtic, you've had obviously Moussa um, Dembélé, very yeah, very very good players, and you know if if Mateta can fit that profile of a very powerful, you know, dominant French forward, then I think it will be a great move for Palace, who have been crying out for that sort of focal point at the, at the, at the head of their attack. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, you know, Christian Benteke hasn't quite worked out for him. He's never been able to for, find the form that he found at Aston Villa. Um, Mishibashwai looked to be a good loan signing, hasn't really filled that void either. So, you know, they've got to look elsewhere. And, it to, to, you know, in my eyes, it looks like a great signing for them.
0: Sweet. Well, that's exciting for me. I'm going to end, I'm going to conclude this uh, inaugural transfer chat on the SW podcast by talking to you about Brentford. And I'm sorry, guys, this conversation will involve the B word, uh, which isn't Brentford, actually. It's uh, Brexit. As you may or may not know, with Brexit, there is now going to be a points-based system to decide whether you can sign foreign players. Um, and the way they're going to basically give out these points is based on where you've previously played, for how long, and to what kind of level. If you qualify for 15 points, you're in. You can sign for any UK team. If you play for a club in a Band One league, so the Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie, a, League One, and you appear on the team sheet just once, you get 12 points. That's 12 of 15. You're pretty close. If you sit on the bench for a single Champions, uh, Champions League group game, that's another five points. You're in. Why does this matter to Brentford? Well, um, so they obviously operate on like a money ball system. In the past, they've signed Neil Mopai, You know, he plays for Brighton now. They got him for 1.8 mil at Saint-Étienne and sold him for 20 mil to Brighton. You know, he would not have got hit that 15-point threshold. They would never have been able to sign him in the first place. Equally, Ben Rama, who I don't know if you guys have seen much of him, is an absolute bowler. They sign him for 1.5 mil. They're about to sell him after his loan's finish for 25 mil to West Ham. He would never have been able to sign either.
1: Yeah, I mean, just on the topic of Brentford, obviously with their manager Thomas Frank being being Danish, he loves to delve into the the Danish market and the Danish Superliga. Um, He signed players uh, like uh, Nilsgaard, Uh, sorry, Dalsgaard, he signed uh, Jensen, loads and loads of of Danish players. And this sort of point system that um, is is now coming in because of Brexit is going to damage them. Uh, There's no doubt about it. But you're completely right in saying the way they work, they they buy players for cheap, um, spot the potential, and then sell them on for a lot more money. They've done it with Ben Rama,
0: Oli Watkins, uh, Neil uh, Morpe. And... Sorry, I'm glad you brought up Ollie Watkins because um, I was looking into it. And basically, obviously, Brentford have spent so much. They've got rid of their academy and they spent loads of money on academy scouting systems in France, in Germany, in Scandinavian countries. You know, looking to recruit those lower league players, as you said, that will not get the, um, the right amount of points. But what are they going to look at now? Apparently, more UK talent like the aforementioned Ollie Watkins. You know, they sold him for 33 mil to Villa. And to get those kind of turnovers, I think, is what they're going to kind of do more of. I mean, they signed Ivan Tony for from Peterborough for 10 mil, and he's been a great signing already. And you can see him being in the Premier League in just a few seasons. So hmm. expect Brentford to be linked with more English players. Um,
1: I, I agree. And I think with um, Ivan Tony as well, I remember hearing from um, the Peterborough manager uh, on a, a news broadcast, and he said, look, even Tony is not a championship player. He yeah. is a, a Premier League footballer. And that's, that's the goal for Brentford. They were so, so close last year to making that happen. And who knows, they may have said, signed even Tony then or Ollie Watkins may have stayed. But regardless, this system does work. You've seen it with teams like Southampton. They buy, they, they buy players. You know, they bought Sadio Mane. Um, they bought in players like Adam Lana, and things like that. I think that might have been an academy prospect. But regardless, they, they bring in these players uh, and they sell them on and, and make a huge profit, and then they start again. It works for teams, it works for Brentford, but you know how much this Brexit sort of system will will force them to go into the English market, we, we wait and see. But um, one thing's for sure they're an exciting team to watch.
0: So after Go Price, a former rugby union and rugby league player won the World Darts Championship. It had us thinking, which South London athletes have competed at the highest level in two sports? So what we're going to do is we're each going to pick a favourite and discuss what was the most impressive feat. So, Bella, who are you backing?
2: Um, on patch, I'm looking at Laurence Ocoye, He's from Croydon. It's actually, he's actually a really cool guy because he started off playing rugby union as a kid for academy teams. So he played for London Irish and Wasps. He this also, guy is, like super talented
0: he also went to Whitgift, which is also a very good rugby school.
2: he did, and yeah, he like goes back and does talks there quite often i think mm. um but then he when he got a bit older, he decided to like pursue discus because he was pretty good at it um and then literally a year after he started to like take it more seriously, he got a gold medal at the european under twenty three athletic championships, so I mean, wait,
0: so, so discus. How many did he discus for? Uh,
2: I'm not sure how long he was actually doing it for, but like when he started taking it more seriously, okay. it was like a year after he started taking it more seriously, it was when he won a European gold medal.
3: Um,
2: so it was pretty good. And then later that year, he's got the British record and he still has that record. So he threw 68.24 meters, which if you think about it, that's far. You're quite a tall guy. And if you think about like how tall you are, and then. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, So how many times? How how many me's did he throw this discus? Don't make me do maths. (laughs) 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 Okay, carry on. Carry on telling me why. Uh, Anyway,
2: moving swiftly on from maths. Uh, So then he went, the next year he went to the London Olympics um, and he got into the final. He was a bit disappointed in himself. He finished 12th, but he was the youngest finalist in that final because he was only like 20. And then, yeah, then he had a place actually to study law at Oxford. What? He turned yeah, I know. This guy is like everything. What
0: a triple threat.
2: <laughs> I know. Um, but he didn't take it. He still like, says he might take it on in the future, though. Um, and he went over to the States and was in the NFL. Uh, he signed with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, and he actually played for the Arizona Cardinals, New York Jets, Dallas Cowboys, Chicago Bears, and Miami Dolphins. So he did pretty well. But he was only a practice member.
0: What does that mean?
1: You know, on paper, and, you know, we've got to uh, respect his achievements that he's made in in Discus. Unfortunately, in the (laughs) NFL, um, you know, the fact that he's made appearances or not appearances, he's played for that many squads, you know, on paper sounds really impressive, but unfortunately, they are practice squads, which essentially Mm -hmm. means that, you know, most NFL teams have a 53 man roster who they will have for each NFL game. It does mean that he's never played for one of those rosters. And, he 's used on a practice squad where they you know practice plays and sequences, but never actually makes the the squad as he 's still
0: paid a wage i assume he
1: will, he will still be paid a wage it won 't be anything like the the main stars on the team but you know don 't get me wrong the fact that he 's still at that many different squads must mean that he 's an asset you know, in terms of what they 're trying to practice, okay. but it just means that he 's not being used in a game scenario so I think Pella's gonna go on and talk about why, you know, why Lawrence Curry has gone back to 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 Discus.
2: Well, I think it must be a thing almost of because in Discus, in Britain, he is the best at it. Um, yeah, so he came back to athletics in 2019. Um, and his best since has been 65.15 meters, which he threw in Germany in July last year. Um, and that's still like the eighth best throw in britain in all time
0: yeah to contextualize that that is throwing a discus the length of 30 me's
2: lying down wow (laughs) Wow. and you're incredible incredible. like that's impressive (laughs) um but yeah he said like he's obviously because of covid he's not really been able to do much um and he keeps quite a low profile he doesn't have twitter or instagram so it's hard to like know what he's currently up to um but it looks like he's gonna keep throwing discus and hopefully keep throwing it far. You never know, he might be going on to Tokyo. Uh, but he's not said anything about it. I th-
1: I think the fact that he's obviously gone away from the sport for a period of time and has been able to reach the, the top level again, I think that's a great credit to, to him. I think a lot of people would struggle with that. Once they've left the sport, trying to get back to the to the pinnacle is mm. must be such a challenge, but he's made it look easy.
0: Um, yeah, totally. So
1: great pick there, Bella.
0: Tell me why Christian Wade is a better pick, Harry. Your- well, yes.
1: Yes, you've given away... I was going to reveal my pick, Chris, but we'll <laughs> go with it. It is, it is Christian Wade. Uh, now, for you rugby fans, you'll know exactly who Christian Wade is. Um, he made several appearances um, for Wasps after making his debut in 2011. Um, 165 appearances, actually, uh, scoring at 497 points. So averaging, you know, over three points a game, which is, which is very good, um, you know in my opinion, anyway, uh, and he's now on the, on the practice squad of the Buffalo Bills, who are another NFL team. So again, someone that's making their transition from you know, a sport in the UK to, um, to American football. So you know, not, a, not a, a stereotypical move for, for a player, but we're seeing two examples here. Um, now, in terms of what he's achieved in rugby union, he equaled a premiership record in 2016 He scored six tries in a single match against Worcester, which you know I'm not a rugby player myself, but to score six tries in one game is a is quite a remarkable achievement. Mm -hmm. Um, He was capped only once for England, uh, away at Argentina, but still, obviously, to him that's you know that's a great achievement to represent his country, and I'm sure you know he was very proud of that. Now the reason he's on patch, he actually studied sports science at St Mary's, just up the road in in Twickenham, Um, so you know clearly an intelligent guy as well and a very fast man. Uh, he ran the 100 metres in 10.8 seconds yeah. at, the, at the age of 16.
0: Now that's... You know, that's he, insane. He
2: can... Wow, that's so good.
0: At the moment, I am comparing your two people, both of them very impressive feats. I would say, I reckon, um, Bella, your guy is going to beat Christian Wade in the game of chess. I, and I also think, christian wade, his transition the transition from rugby to American football seems pretty seamless compared to the transition from throwing something really far to american football uh, is that fair I, I would agree with that
1: yeah, I would I say think, that's true um,
2: yeah
1: I think my guy would be able to throw the ball further probably I, I think well. he'd be able to throw wade further as well yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean similar to it tokoyi um Wade is. Str- Really, in the NFL, he's he's yet to make it on the 53 man roster as a Koei did. But, but, and I recommend anyone that's got Twitter to check this out Christian Wade scored a remarkable touchdown for the Buffalo Bills. Now, it was a preseason game, so it won't go down as his first NFL appearance, but it was quite remarkable. 65 yards he ran for a touchdown on his very first carry for the Buffalo Bills. Now, you know, that was in 2019. He hasn't really pushed on since then. But, my God, if, if you watch that, you know, you'll be astounded. It, it was absolutely amazing.
0: Okay, well, um, I'm going I'm to chuck my hat into the ring now because uh, I've gone a kind of different angle. Um, so, I've gone for Leon McKenzie, who I think may be more familiar uh, to some of the listeners. Um, so, obviously, he came through at Palace, um, did really well at Peterborough, spent three years at Peterborough, got basically a one-in-two record, uh, 49 goals, 103 games. Uh, you probably will remember him for his time at Norwich, though. Basically got them promoted, was actually pretty decent in the Premier League, uh, striking up a partnership with Dean Ashton. So here you've got a guy who, you know, scored his first career goal at the age of 18 at Palace, his hometown club from Croydon. You know, amazing. Made his Premier League debut whilst he was still in his teens. Like, amazing as well. But it got to the point that whilst he was at Charlton, um, which was like at the latter end of his career, he struggled to regain form after an achilles injury and um tried to take his own life so now like leon mckenzie campaigns for mental health he's brilliant at it but not only did he retire from football and kind of get his life back together in terms of you know uh, like he's clearly done some good stuff uh in terms of like looked after himself and whatnot he actually started a boxing career I mean, he comes from a family of boxers. And it wasn't, just like, it wasn't just like a kind of Freddie Flintoff boxing career. It was a proper career. It was a four-year career. Um, he won eight times. He won eight fights. Um, quite a lot of them knockouts. Um, and he lost twice. But it got to the point where on the 12th of November in 2016, um, he was fighting uh, Jermaine Smile at York Hall for the super middleweight title. So he literally got to near the pinnacle of a completely different sport. You know, think of all the people think of all the kids in the country that have wanted to be professional Premier League footballers. And then think of all I mean probably less, but there's still probably loads of kids in the country who want to box at a pretty high level, want to fight for belts. And I mean this guy did both. And all the while, you know, so you know, being a mental health campaigner and just being an inspiring story for pretty much anyone.
1: In my opinion, I think this could be the best transition. The reason I say that, when you play football, yes, you've got a lot of accountability on yourself, but ultimately you are part of a team and you're judged as a team. Whereas moving to, to a boxing career, you're, you're, you're on your own. You're in that ring, you're on your own. You've got your team in the corner, but they're not, you know, they're not with you. You're performing on your own and only you can do you know, what you can in the ring. And I think that mentally, um, to have that sort of attitude is is quite remarkable, and to 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 move from a team sport where there's eleven you on a field to one of you on a ring uh, in a ring is 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 truly remarkable, and what an achievement.
2: I think as well, it's impressive even like looking at like the athleticism of it, like going from football where you have to have quite a lot of endurance for you know to play a ninety minute match, and obviously with boxing you still need a certain level of endurance, but you also need like so much power, like more power probably than a footballer would need. Um, so to be able to, like, make that switch is, yeah, really impressive. But I do think there is more um, for, like, para-athletes. Um, there seems to be more opportunity, I think, for them to have that, like, duality. Um, mainly, I think maybe it's because when with para, para-athletes, there are less of them. So obviously when they go to do one sport, they, why wouldn't they try another one if it's transferable? So like I looked at, um, I know it's off patch, sorry, she's from Manchester, but Sarah's story, like she's a 29 world champion, a 21-time European champion and has 75 world records in swimming and and track cycling. Like that's proper impressive. Um, She's also the most successful female British Paralympian of all time. She's got 14 gold medals. She's got two children. And she's going to go to Tokyo and she's said like she's not going to stop and she's in her 40s. Wow.
0: All right. Pretty cool. Well, uh, in the next section, we'll be talking to a former QPR Academy player, um, George Butler, about the kind of welfare in the Academy system and uh, what it's like, I don't know, going through that experience. (music) Okay, welcome back to the SWL podcast. We are joined by George Butler, a former QPR Academy player. So how are you doing today, George? Are you having a good day?
3: Yeah, well, making, you know, doing the best we can with with what we can and can't do. So no, but not too bad.
0: Yeah, not been the most eventful day, I assume. No, definitely not. Okay, so you're at QPR from what age? Uh, So I joined uh, when I was 11. Okay.
3: So um, this was a period what they call the schoolboy academy. So this is like you know pretty much uh, is exactly what it says it is. You know you're at school, you're training twice twice during the week, once on the weekend, and then a game on the Sunday as well. So
0: that's when I joined. Yeah. And how when you started? So you're a schoolboy, you're an 11 year old kid. How serious is it? Like does it feel like it's going to be a career or is it just like a laugh and you have QPR kit and stuff?
3: I'd say, well, it's definitely not just a laugh. I mean, I went from just playing with my mates in the local area to, you know, you're not really knowing anyone. There's a bit more of a demand on you, but there is still that element of fun at the end of it because you are 11. But it's definitely a bit more serious than just your your standard local football
0: team for sure. And did did you did you feel the pressure there? Like when you're when you're 11, and you do you feel that seriousness, or is it just? Um,
3: Yes, to an extent. You know, you've, you you know that, you know, you're essentially you sign sort of two year rolling deals at that age. So, you know, you've got two years there, but at the end of those two years, you know, they're going to decide whether to take you on for the next two years or not. So you do sort of think about that, but that's sort of like an afterthought. You know, your first and foremost thought is, you know, you're getting kit, you're getting good training, you get to go and watch the first team train and play and stuff. So there's lots of things that sort of take your mind off that. Um, so it's not like, at, you know, the front of your mind, that's what you want to think about. But yeah, it's a more pressured environment, but not overly so.
1: Cool. George, thank you very much for coming on. Um, Harry, I just want to ask what your um, best highlight was at the QPR Academy.
3: <laughs> um, so I'll quickly just break it down into three. So essentially I was there as just in the Schoolboy Academy, the Youth Team Academy, and then as a, as a pro for one year. So in the Schoolboy Academy... Um, we actually went, we went to a tournament over in belgium uh where we had teams like ajax were playing and anderlecht uh, feyenoord psv all these big dutch teams and what have you um and belgian teams and we actually finished third out of 12 teams which for um qpr it was uh yeah it was pretty good pretty impressive so uh and i was very lucky to be captain for that team so that would probably be my highlight for the schoolboy academy um then in the, as a youth team player Uh, As we briefly mentioned just before we started this, um, managed to score a free kick uh, against Man City, which was probably the personal highlight for me. Uh, But collectively, we also won a tournament in New York. Um, This was a tournament that had uh, Liverpool, Maccabi Haifa, uh, Inter Milan. Uh, They were in it and we, we beat Inter Milan in the semis and beat Liverpool in the final. So that was pretty cool. Uh, unfortunately, I probably couldn't pick one out of my pro year. <laughs> spent, a lot of, spent a lot of time on the subs bench and on the physio bed, but uh, it was a great experience, but probably not any individual highlights from that year, unfortunately.
1: And who would you say the, uh, the best player that you played with at the academy level was? Uh,
3: best player played with at academy level? We had quite a few. So, I mean, I had a, one, literally one training session where Raheem Sterling was there. Yeah, um, wow. So that was before he went to Liverpool. Um,
0: was he obviously better than everyone else?
3: (laughs) Oh, I'm unbelievable. I mean, when he was 13 or something, he was playing with the under 18s and was arguably the best player in the under 18s. And he's 13. (laughs) Um, I mean, just the physical demands of a 13 year old to do that is incredible, but to be the best one of the best players is impressive.
1: Mm.
2: So,
3: but that was only sort of once I only ever like trained with him, so um. It's difficult. I mean in my age group we had a few decent players. Um one lad's now playing for Crawley, played for like um Island under twenty ones and stuff like that. So he was obviously very good. Um played one game where a Delta Rap played? No.
0: That I mean, was have been horrible.
3: Yeah, <laughs> he, he didn't really play well but it was cool to say you've played with him. Um uh, yeah, so it's hard to sort of pinpoint one player. I mean, Did like say, you... in our group, we had quite a few decent players. So.
0: I'm begging to ask whether you played with Eberretriezze because I'm a Palace fan. But... You know what?
3: I played against him. So oh. um, he's a year below me. So growing up, I didn't really play against him much when we played against Millwall. But then when, we, when I was in my pro year, I played against him. And then I was released at the end of that year. And then he joined after I'd left. So um, didn't quite get the chance to play with him, but played against him once or twice.
0: Wow. Okay. So when you're in the academy system, you're clear, I mean, you are clearly like the captain of the team. You clearly were pretty good, and you got all the way through schoolboys and got a pro contract. At that point, do they sell the dream to you when you're when you're 16, 17? Are they making you think you're going to be a professional footballer, or are they telling you to, you know, hedge your bet, like to just to kind of be careful what you wish for and um, I
3: would say probably more towards um, like, yeah, being careful, like, you know, you've got to work hard to get there. I mean, QPR is a club that's not exactly like, it's not your Chelsea's, your Arsenal's. It's not like a, an elite team, an elite club, We're a very good club, don't get me wrong, very well run. Um, but, you know, we'd always sort of be told, you know we we, were, we always sort of knew where we were and where we stood within the club. And if you weren't going to work hard, you weren't going to get to the next stage. That sort of, at that period of time, the players they wanted, they wanted hard working players, local lads that wanted to play for the club as opposed to those that just wanted to make money. Um, so we sort of, we knew that it was within touching distance um, and we were quite lucky within our age group. You know, we had quite a good, strong group. Um, so I think some of us, knew we were gonna at least get offered a scholarship um some earlier than others so it's difficult looking back on it now because it's a few years ago but i wouldn't say it was sold to us i think it was definitely like advertised to us if you know what i mean you know we'd get Mm -hmm. times to train with the youth team and see the first team and you know get tickets to go and watch the first team play and what have you but then it was always told well if you work hard that's how you'll get
1: there george i wanted to ask you um I like a bit of football myself, nowhere near on, on your level, unfortunately, but I went to a, a Gillingham trial once, never got asked back, which was uh, not surprising based on my performance and the fact everyone was better than me. Uh, but I just wanted to ask, you know, if you can reflect on, on that time when you were told that you were no longer going to be part of QPR, you know, how did that feel at that moment? Because obviously, you know, you've dedicated your you know, early life to it. And I want to know, obviously, you know, what you did for the few months after, after that decision was made.
3: Sure. So it was a bit of a strange one. So I'd had a had a few injuries um, and then I got back fit and I started playing a few minutes here and there in some games. And um, I, I thought, of, you know, early on in the year, I thought, right, yeah, I'm not going to get offered a new deal. Um, but then I started to perform quite well. And I thought, you know what, they might see something and think, well, let's give them one more year excuse me, and and give them a chance. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Like I say, I got called into the room. They told me, look, we're not going to be extending your deal, which I kind of understood um which was fine so um yeah it was a strange one and literally about two days after that I got injured again quite a severe injury I had like what they call a bone contusion on my knee um so that put me out for about 13 weeks which basically ruled me out of going to trial with any other clubs um so the first like I say two or three months I was injured um and then I was sort of just waiting by the phone every day really waiting for a club to ring me waiting for Uh, an agent to ring me and say we could get you here get you there Um, and I kind of just completely lost heart if I'm honest and was like well I'm just sitting around like was getting pretty comfortable at home wasn't doing anything so I was like right well I'll go to uni and start afresh there. Um, I did have a phone call from an old coach who went up to Scumfort um, and he asked me to go and train with them but because they were playing against Grimsby and Grimsby wanted to have a look at me Uh, But at the time I was on crutches, so I couldn't go. So when I rang him when I was off my crutches, he was like, sorry, mate, like it's a bit too late now. And he was actually the first one that said to me, you might have missed the boat, but how about going to uni, getting a degree, playing football down there? Um, Which looking back on, you know, I'm grateful that he he actually was pretty honest with me.
0: Do you think that's that privilege of being able to take that decision to be, Uh, smart enough or have the kind of financial backing to go to uni is available to every academy player that gets dropped? Uh,
3: Academically, I mean, you have to, when you're a scholar, you have to, you get put on a course, a a BTEC course, um, which you have to do. So in a sense, I mean, it might have changed out, it might not be BTEC now, sorry, but when I was there, everyone was on this BTEC course. And if you passed, you basically had a good enough grade to get to uni if you needed it which is great because, you know, some boys after their scholarship year, that was that, well, their two years, that was that. But you also do your coaching badges as well. So you don't have to go to uni necessarily. You could go straight into employment as a coach. Um, so that's all in place, which is really good. Um, I'm not saying I'm the smartest person in the room, because so I'm definitely not. Um, but I was always, you know, like steady at, um, uh, at school. So I felt like I could always go to uni. I mean... I didn't exactly go to, uh, to your Loughboroughs or to uh, Cambridge or whatever, um, but still got the uh, highest degree in my family. So uh,
2: so now you're a football coach for Chelsea. How did you get onto that pathway after being a pro for a year and then going to uni?
3: Yeah, so obviously, like I said before, when you're a scholar, you, do your, you go straight onto your FA level two. Um, so that meant whilst I was at uni, I was able to get a, a job with Chelsea's foundation, which is like their, their charity side of things. Um, So going into schools in the local area and doing like P lessons after school clubs and then doing regional centres in the evening. Um, So I started doing that at uni. And if I'm honest, um, I didn't really think I wanted to go down the coaching route. Um, But as you guys probably are all aware, like you're at uni, you need money. And I was lucky to have that qualification. So went and did that. It was pretty good. You could pick and choose your hours around your studies. So that was pretty good. Uh, And then I graduated and was offered a full time role within the foundation. Um, which is what I'm doing now. So I oversee a grassroots programme in the, in Hampshire. Um, so just sort of selling the Chelsea brand to try and support grassroots football um, and support the coaches. So I do that. And then I also help out with um, what's called an integration programme, which is essentially a middle ground between um, Chelsea's foundation and Chelsea's academy. Because what they found was they'd be bringing players in from the foundation and putting them in the academy, but they probably... We're making too much of a jump. So what they do now is they come to the integration programme for six weeks and those that we think are good enough are then pushed on. So it's a bit more gradual for them. Um, It's not just a shock to them to go and play for Chelsea's academy, but then also it gives the scouts and coaches a chance to see if they'd fit in with the academy as well. So that's sort of what I'm up to now. Um, Yeah, didn't think I would be doing that Um, if you'd asked me when I was 16. Uh, but it's great just to still be involved in football um, and just see a different side of it, really.
0: Hey, George, you've been absolutely lovely for doing this. Yeah, thanks so lady much. For the show. <laughs> After talking to George Butler, we thought we'd bookend our podcast with a little bit of myth debunking. What famous myth from a particular sport is an absolute lie? So first, I'm going to go to Harry Garside, and he's going to tell me about something I've believed my whole life, because I'm an idiot. Harry. Thank
1: you, Chris. Uh, I will take it away. And it's also something that I thought about my whole life. Um, now, Zinédine Sedan, Zin, Zidane, the French maestro. The myth that he was never caught offside. Well, I hate to ruin uh, you know, your, your childhood, Chris, but he was caught offside. Caught offside numerous times, in fact. Five times at the World Cup and European tournaments, and numerous times in his club career as well. So for those of you that think Zidane was never caught offside, well, you're wrong, including
0: you, Chris. Well, that's annoying, because Zidane was my favourite footballer growing up, and it was purely because he always stayed onside, which I loved. Um, Bella, give me a myth. Tell me why I'm stupid. Go on.
2: I mean, obviously, I picked a cycling one, because it's the best sport on the planet. Um... So British uh, road cyclist Chris Froome, you know, four-time Tour de France winner. Uh, Yeah, he is actually born in Kenya, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, He spent a lot of his childhood like training there, and maybe that is why he is so good at uh, doing a long distance, because, as you know, they churn out some of the best long distance runners. Um, So yeah, I thought that was a, a pretty good myth.
0: Oh, thanks, Bella, for debunking the myth that cycling is the best sport on the planet. Uh, <laughs> um, OK, I'll... I'll um, my myth's a bit weird. Right. OK, so if you haven't heard of him, Wilt Chamberlain is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He was a centre. He once got 100 points in a game, which, if you don't watch basketball, is just insane and never never been seen again. However... In his autobiography in 1992, he claimed to have slept with 20,000 different women during his life. Um, A website did the maths here. And so if he started at the age of 15, which he claimed, um, and then up to the age of 55, which is when the book was published, he would have had 40 years to sleep with 20,000 women, which is 500 women a year or 1.4 women a day. Um, however, close childhood friend Tim Fizew said, I don't remember him having a date. He was probably a virgin when he left high school. So then I guess if Wilt started at 18, then he would have had to sleep with 1.5 women per day for 37 years. To me, that sounds like crap.
2: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a bit of a J statement.
0: Yeah, um anyway. A lovely note to end the podcast on. Wilt Chamberlain, stop lying. You don't need to do it. Um, But this has been wonderful. Thank you, Bella, for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, no problem. And thank you, Harry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So uh, follow the South West Londoner on SW underscore Londoner on Twitter. And, you know, give it a follow on Instagram too. South West Londoner for all your South West Londoner football and sport needs. Thank you and uh, have a lovely evening.